0: Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today's extra episode is with Rachel Bronson. She is in charge of the organisation that sets the doomsday clock that tells us how close we are to midnight and we are now closer than we've ever been. She tells us why. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, the only magazine willing to ask the questions that keep you awake at night and answer them too even if it takes 10,000 words. Is it okay to have a child in the age of climate crisis? Where next for the coronavirus? Was it a hermit crab that ate Amelia Earhart? You know where to go. Talking Politics listeners get to subscribe for a world-beating rate using the URL lrb.me slash talk. They'll even send you a free copy of Sinomania, writing about China, from the London Review of Books, just go to lrb.me talk. We recorded this conversation about 10 days ago. The coronavirus was already a huge story, as you'll hear. though are not as big as it is now. We recorded it in the offices of the Centre for the Study of Existential Risk in Cambridge, a very appropriate place to talk about the end of the world. We were in their library, which is on the street. You may hear some cars passing in the background. Rachel Bronson is the president and the CEO of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, who have been setting the doomsday clock since 1947. I started by asking her to give us a bit of history and a bit of background. Maybe we could start with some historical context. The doomsday clock is closer to midnight than it has been, and it has been around since 1947. The 50s actually was the closest it's been until recently. Can you just frame the recent decision by the panel against that historical backdrop?
1: So when the clock was first created in 1947, it was set at seven minutes to midnight. It has moved as close as two minutes to midnight in 1953 when the US and the uh, Soviets both exploded hydrogen bombs, tested hydrogen bombs. It's moved close to midnight and far away from midnight throughout its history. And it was as far away from midnight as 17 minutes to midnight in 1991. So it moves forward and backwards. In recent years, we've been moving it closer to midnight for a number of reasons that I'm sure we'll talk about. But the three big reasons really have been the deterioration in U.S., Russian relations, a huge reinvestment in nuclear arsenals uh, across the globe, and a failure of the international community to cooperate on things like climate change. The last move in January of 2020 was to 100 seconds to midnight, which is the closest it's been in history and was very intentionally so. So we are close, and the reasons that we'll talk about demand kind of urgent attention. And
0: in that story, midnight symbolizes catastrophe, and it's one of these questions with existential risk. What do we actually mean? That's right. Are we talking about the end of everything? Is it measurable? I'm not going to ask you what would midnight look like, but when these decisions are being made, how is midnight calibrated?
1: Yeah, and it's gotten increasingly complicated for us to answer the question. It was a little bit easier to answer the question in the 40s and 50s where it was a nuclear exchange. And a nuclear exchange then, and in this day and age, is really the end of civilization as we know it. So it's very clear and it can happen within minutes. It's become a little bit more complicated as the clock has evolved. And in 2007, we included climate change for the first time, which I'd be happy to talk about. But answering what midnight looks like in climate change is a lot harder And And it's not a matter of minutes. No, it's not a matter of minutes. So, well, in our clock, it is a matter of minutes. But but in real time, as you said, a nuclear exchange is is an event. That's right. And uh, that really is a matter of minutes. So adding in climate change makes that harder to answer. But nonetheless, we still maintain that it's the end of civilization as we know it. And what's been fascinating with the climate experts that are included in changing the clock is have we already passed midnight, how far away from midnight it is. When we set the clock every year, I ask the Science and Security Board or the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists who set the clock, is humanity safer or at greater risk this year than it was last year and this year compared to the years at which we've been answering that question? How they answer that question dictates what time it is on the clock.
0: In the report that accompanied the decision in January to move to 100 seconds to midnight, you describe the interplay between what we might call the raw existential risks, nuclear exchange, catastrophic climate change, and also around technology as well, and the potential inadequacies of the international institutions that will be required to mitigate these risks. And a lot of different people go into making this decision, but which one is weighing larger? Because what's so interesting about it is the interplay between them. We're sitting in the center for the study of existential risk, and, and risks can be this freestanding set of things. It's the interplay with the institutions that matters.
1: Yeah, it is the interplay of and the, the weaving together of the different risks. And so there's, I think, two points in this report that are really worth spending some time on and help generate uh, the time. The first, and for watchers of this, close watchers of this, you would have seen this emerging in the last report last year, which is the focus on cyber-enabled threats and the role they play in exacerbating our ability to deal with these larger existential issues of nuclear threat and climate. There's a real focus, especially last year, but pulled into this report, which is the threat enabler that that becomes and how it makes everything more difficult. And so we saw that emerging last year very strongly, and it's there again in this report. And so that's one piece of the technology that's kind of worth talking about. But what you're talking about and really, I would say, the driving force of the move from two minutes to midnight to 100 seconds to midnight and that odd 20-second move is the failing capacity of international institutions to manage what are clearly global threats. Whereas in past reports, we've really focused on the growing threat. In this report, it's the decreasing ability to manage that and a real focus on not only the failure of the international community, but the dismantling of architectures that allowed us to manage them in the past and that intentional dismantling of an international architecture without replacing it with anything really is driving that 20 seconds
0: i want to come on to that in a second on the first point the the kind of accelerators or enablers of the risk there's also the interplay between the risks so just to give you an example coronavirus is out there coronavirus is not the end of civilization coronavirus illustrates the weakness of a globalized world to certain kinds of threats that can then destabilize institutions. So there's a possibility if it really takes off that the big climate conference later this year that was due to happen in the UK might not happen. And that was right. not going to solve climate change. But you can imagine circumstances in which these things play off each other. Yeah. And that's, that's the real destabilizer in a very integrated, globalized world. People are focused now on supply chains, but there's a kind of institutional supply chain issue here.
1: Yeah. I was reading this morning, there's a big nuclear conference at the end of April, beginning of May, that we're starting to look at that, like the climate conference, may, may get postponed. The coronavirus is a good example of the interplay But even a better example of the collapsing international architecture to deal with global challenges. The interplay that we see really between kind of cyber and artificial intelligence and nuclear issues, climate, that's where I see a very strong interplay, where we think about how is the changing climate. How will that affect conflict in the future? How will that affect our nuclear security? If there is a nuclear exchange at some point, they will have horrendous uh, consequences to populations, but also changes the climate, which makes it impossible for others to survive. The interplay between the cyber threats and understanding kind of what is true and real in moments when we need very fast reactions those are the kinds of interplays of the issues that we look at. The focus on the coronavirus, I think, speaks to that the international inability to appropriately manage 21st century challenges. And you would have thought a few decades ago that we would have just built and built and built on our capacity, but that willful underinvestment and this, the willful dismantling of our abilities to to handle this are, are striking. On this, I don't want to be alarmist about this part of it because we are seeing a global response. And we actually, if you speak to public health experts, as slow as China has been to respond, they've been faster than in past pandemics. So we are seeing them respond, and there is a global learning. That being said, the kinds of investments that we need to be made and the kind of institutions we need are not keeping up with the threats and in some cases are being dismantled.
0: And in a way, the point of the clock, it's a wake-up call. I mean, it's it's a device to educate and inform people. It's not designed to just terrify them. That's right. And there's always the hope for the crisis that will not be so bad that it destabilizes, but will be bad enough to really galvanize. I mean, it's something between galvanizing and destabilizing. And the coronavirus, who knows how it'll pan out, but as you say, it's not a reason yet to be profoundly pessimistic about it. And yet, this is also playing against the backdrop of national politics, where all of these issues feed into democratic and in the Chinese case, non-democratic systems, which are themselves vulnerable. As we've seen, they're vulnerable to loss of confidence, but they're also vulnerable to shocks. When you look at the institutional risks, there's the international institutions that we might expect to manage it, if they are being weakened, they're being weakened by national politicians who are either withdrawing support or overtly destabilizing them. So then do we have to trace it back to the national level? That was a long question.
1: Yeah, well, I think, you know, the, I think it's absolutely appropriate because what we're seeing in a national context, certainly across democracies, is challenges of populism and distrust for government and a distrust for politics as we have known it and this rise of populism which has a sense of being destructive in terms of the the architectures that we know one of the things this is in the u.s case right now it's very timely there is a question about how the coronavirus will play in our, in u.s politics which is we have seen exactly what you're saying kind of national movements to dismantle global cooperation efforts How is the coronavirus going to play? Is it a reminder for U.S. voters who are right now in their primaries that government matters and that you need to invest in government's ability to manage the public good, public health, or are we willing to kick it all down? And we don't know yet, but the coronavirus will play into this question, and at least in the U.S. context, we're watching it be answered. But what we're seeing on other issues, climate and nuclear issues, there is a, to some extent, certainly in the U.S. context, a disinterest in arms control at a moment where we so desperately need it to manage our nuclear threat. And by our, I mean the global nuclear threat. This walking away from a period from 1970 to 2010, which would be kind of the golden age of arms control, there's a lot of skepticism around it. Lyndon Johnson had a quote that I think is really appropriate now, President Lyndon Johnson, which was, it's easier to burn down the outhouse than install plumbing. And we're seeing that in terms of global institutions around climate change, public health, certainly in the nuclear space as well.
0: We interviewed Michael Lewis on this podcast a couple of months ago about his book, The Fifth Risk. And the fifth risk for Michael Lewis is government failure in fact bureaucratic failure and the point of his book was to say people don't know how government works and they don't know the things it does and they don't know how important it is and he said he expected at some point in the Trump presidency people to wake up to this because something would happen that would represent that failure and maybe the coronavirus is it but as you say there's also the nuclear question and managing not just the nuclear threat but managing the actual hardware is a job of bureaucracy it's not a job of politicians The United States government has an extremely sophisticated arm whose job it is to keep us safe from those weapons as well as have them available for use. Have we forgotten that the biggest risk of all is that one? Because this clock started exclusively focused on that. And over time, other risks have come in. I take it from your report, unless I'm misreading it, it remains the biggest risk.
1: Not only does it remain the biggest risk, it's getting worse in terms of our ability to manage it. If you look across the globe, there is a return to the belief that a nuclear war can be fought and possibly won. Every major nuclear power is investing heavily in their nuclear arsenals. The Russians are, the Americans are, Pakistan has the fastest growing nuclear arsenal on the planet, China is investing very heavily in its abilities and capabilities. The United States at this moment is in the beginnings of what is called a modernization, but is really a wholesale recreation of a new nuclear arsenal that will cost the American people somewhere between $1.2 and $1.8 trillion over the next 30 years. And if that sounds like a lot of money, it is. (laughs) And that's what an arms race looks like, that we are in the United States embarking on again, with the Russians. And the reason you embark on an arms race is because you look at what the other side is doing, and you're threatened by it, and you reinvest in your own arsenals. And that causes the other side to do just the same. And that's exactly the dynamic that Reagan and Gorbachev removed us from, and that we have slipped back into. On the US side, we are not going through the hard questions of whether or not we can invest in non-nuclear capabilities to address the Russian capability. We're matching them toe for toe in all investments they are making. So that massive amount of investment is an indication of the belief that not only do we need them, but if you look at the U.S. Nuclear Posture Review, we are expanding the definition of threat that we will respond to with the nuclear use. So you can now read it, we call it the nuclear posture review, to say we will respond in a nuclear scenario or a non-nuclear scenario. There is a clear threat in there that if U.S. infrastructure, energy infrastructure, is attacked, we would consider a nuclear response. That's new and expanded definition of how we would respond with nuclear weapons.
0: Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books.
1: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile.
0: Would it be fair to say that that strategy, a lot of money, as you say, we're no longer in the world of mutually assured destruction. This is not being built with the deep expectation that it will never be used. There's at least a potential shift that's going on in the world right now, as you said, that this is being built with the expectation that it will be used. And that is different even from the pre- Reagan-Gorbachev period.
1: You're beginning to see real signs of that. So the Russians train their mili- go through military exercises as if they might be in a nuclear environment. So they are training as if this is a possibility. And what we're seeing with the Russians is what's called escalate to de-escalate, that they may use low-yield tactical weapons in some sort of battlefield. That reality has led the US now to deploy quote unquote low-yield weapons that are anywhere between a third of what we saw at Hiroshima to as powerful as Hiroshima. That's what we mean by low yield. It's not a firecracker, it's massively destructive. There seems to be a belief in in the the thinking of this that if one side used a low-yield weapon and the other one did, we would stop at that. There would be no escalation. And yet, there's no reason to believe that you wouldn't go right up the escalation ladder. It's hard to imagine that once the taboo has been broken around nuclear use that there is any stopping that escalation ladder. It's terrifying. And so this notion of meeting the other side at the exact yield that they have is costly and reckless and terrifying. And that has led to why the clock is that close. And a question that often comes up is 100 seconds to midnight is closer than we had been during the Cold War. And how is that possible? But if you think of where we are right now, and the the myriad of threats that we're facing, in some ways, we're very similar to where we were in the beginning of the Cold War. There's No international architecture to to deal with these issues. In fact, in the beginning of the Cold War, there was a a void. Now there's a dismantling. You're seeing huge investments being made in nuclear arsenals, just like you had in the past. And the threats are a lot more complicated. So the Dune's Clock is a wake-up call to draw attention to this fact, which we don't feel every day, going through our uh, everyday lives, doing the things that matter but there's something that requires our attention, and the optimistic part of it, and what we strongly believe, is that we have moved that, this clock back to as far as 17 minutes to midnight, and it's, we can certainly move it further, but we need to pay attention to it, and we need to demand that our leaders do better by us.
0: This may be a hard question to answer, but it follows on from that. When these judgments are made, is there a conversation about what kinds of things might happen over the next year, two years, five years, that would allow you to move the clock back. So during the Cold War, there were some fairly obvious benchmarks. Nuclear arms treaties, the Cold War ending, Mm -hmm. was a good 1991. It's not a coincidence. Mm -hmm. That's when it was 17 minutes to midnight. Mm -hmm. So you look forward two years, five years. Do you have benchmarks in mind for the kinds of things that would allow you to move it back?
1: Yeah, and the reason that we announced the time in January is very intentionally at the beginning of a new year rather than in December at the end of a year, because our goal is for this to be aspirational so that we, by the next year at this time, at the end of 2020, for example, we'd be able to move the clock away from midnight. We talk about the need, for example, in the nuclear space to renew the New START agreement, which will expire in 2021, February. We talk about the need to stay at the table on climate issues. We call out the bright spot of the galvanizing global movement, especially around the young people around climate change. We didn't move the clock away from midnight because of that, but we called it out as it's very positive and it's influencing political parties across the globe. We do think we need a lot more public engagement on these issues because they matter. We hear it from our political leaders that they matter, and we've seen it on the climate space that it matters. We really do need more imaginative responses to how we're going to deal with the 21st century world and the overlap of these issues. I don't think we can say, oh, well, we just need to go back to the Iran deal, and we need to go back to Paris, and... All of that's true, but it's not imaginative at this point. And we have more actors and players that need to be involved.
0: And in a way, that's why I said it's it's a hard question to answer because those benchmarks at Paris, as I was thinking of, they cut both ways. You get the thing that looks like the agreement a couple of years on and beyond. It looks like a very weak agreement. And in some ways, you're worse off than you were before because it symbolizes the weakness of the institutions. And I agree with you, we're looking for... Signs which we're not familiar with. I mean, it's a theme we talk about a lot on this podcast. I think a lot about now is different, is new. I think people who say this time is different as a mistake are themselves making a mistake. And our political imaginations, particularly our 20th century political imaginations, you see it in democratic politics all the time. We want to go back. There's a nostalgia for 1991. And that's not going to cut it.
1: Yeah, it's it's not going to cut it, but, you know, we need to do the best that we can, and that's why I, I do come out to universities, and I think this is a great time to be working on these issues, as terrifying as it is, because there are real opportunities. But that being said, we need to do what we know and just keep pushing forward, that's to me what's so alarming about walking away from Paris or walking away from arms control agreements, which is I think the skeptics are right to point out their limitations. Absolutely. But by pulling out of them, we're only making the situation worse. It is harder to do anything from a standing start. In the U.S.-Russian context, we need negotiations. We need areas of overlap. We're not speaking to them at all in this moment of increased investments. It's insanity. In some ways, the Trump administration is right that we need to pull China into arms control discussions and discussions around China. But just saying that isn't going to make it happen. And recognizing that in terms of arms control anyway, our issues are so much more profound than the Chinese in terms of our number and sheer power. So how are we going to integrate them, and what is that going to look like? They haven't even come close to answering that question. Again, we can't burn down the outhouse without installing plumbing, and so we need to work with what we have. We do have arms control agreements that are lapsing, and we need a huge investment in all of the above strategy around climate change because time is really running out in terms of our ability to manage it
0: when you think about the imaginative space we need to occupy, I think there's a real question, not whether we need to get beyond democracy, because democracy is still a really good idea, but representative democracy of the kind that has served us so well for the last 50-ish years, with its particular focus on elections and political parties and certain kinds of institutions. And I think that there's a risk at the moment that people are hungry for change, people are conscious of these issues, and they funnel them through The next election will fix it, or at least be the fresh start. You see it with 2020, November in the US, the hopes that have been invested in various candidates, and we'll see how it goes. When you look at this, do you think we need to not get beyond representative democracy, but think harder about other kinds of politics? Because you mentioned the activism around climate. There is more activist politics, there's more direct forms of democracy, there are more disruptive forms of democracy, there are more radical forms of democracy. Do you have a view on that?
1: You know, it's a great question, and it's a question that I've been hearing more in my time in the UK than I've been hearing in the US. So it's interesting to think about the different conversations. I'm not yet ready to give up on representative democracy. Nor am I. I'm I'm trying to expand (laughs) the scope rather than... Um, well, what I think of in terms of democracy, as well as the threats that we've been talking about today, in some ways, we're further away from experiencing the direct threats on nuclear and the threats to democracy. Climate's a little different on this. But in in the early 50s and 60s, it was easier to think about the challenges about nuclear security because we had just seen the devastation of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And it was easier to think about the importance of democracy and institutionalized representative democracy with strong parties because we had just seen the risks of fascism. They were very immediate and visceral. And as we move away from that, it's harder to remember. And so I think we're a little cavalier with both. That being said, we're in a moment of increasing populism and the question is whether, whether we embrace that or we're scared by that, whether that kind of populism, which seemed so attractive that when it's put into practice, doesn't serve us very well. And we may be moving into kind of maybe that next stage where that kind of populism isn't serving us very well once we experience it. I think we're seeing that in the U.S. I think it may be different here in in Britain in terms of your response to it. I'll leave that for your internal discussions. But in the U.S., we're seeing that debate really playing out right now in the primaries. So I'm not not yet so sure that representative democracy can't manage these challenges. But I think we need to reinvest in our democracies that – we've been moving away from representative democracy in some ways to a populism that is different from that and the parties have not kind of played a role in perhaps keeping out the extremes but the challenges that we face really need a strong a strong middle quite frankly to kind of continue this hard fight that's what we're contesting right now in our politics
0: and presumably, there has to be a technocratic aspect of this too, in the sense these are extremely technical challenges. And one of the features of the current populist moment, if that's what we're going to call it, is that tension between technocracy and democracy. I've always felt that the future is just going to be very varied in the different kinds of democratic politics that we get. And that part of the challenge we face is that we have a single idea of democracy and we think we have to hold on to this, or we get the opposite of this. You know, it's this or fascism, it's this or authoritarianism. Whereas the 21st century is almost certainly going to be a very disaggregated version of democracy. Strong democracy here, more technocracy here, locally grounded democracy here, international institutions here that are weakly connected to local democracy. And we should be able to embrace that, I think. And I think we're struggling to embrace that at the moment because we want our democracy to be this one thing that we defend.
1: When we moved the clock in 2017 from three minutes to two and a half minutes, that was the first time we had moved it in anything other than a in minute increment. We moved it half a minute. We called out two issues. One was a recklessness around nuclear language. And you can look at the report for that. But to this point, the the second one was a real disparagement of expertise. And in the 21st century, when our challenges are global, but we're going to amass more scientific knowledge in the next 40 years than we have in the past 400, we need experts as a serious part of our solutions. And to your point, Any version of democracy that disparages the kind of expertise we need to solve the problem will not serve us well. So we have to figure out a way to recognize the challenges we have, identify the kinds of expertise we need to solve them, and rally around that, at least be inclusive to that and not marginalize it. And that's my worry in a future world where the democracy looks different, that I'm fine with that as long as there's a space for bringing the experts into the conversation as they are needed, when they are needed. I worry in a future that doesn't do that.
0: One last question, I imagine people listening to this will be wanting to ask this question. So it's a personal question, you have a demanding role. Uh, what you've been saying is chilling. And you live with it, right, every day, which many of us don't, even here in the Center for the Study of Existential Risk. I suspect there's a less direct engagement with it than you have. How do you live with it?
1: I am asked that question frequently. Um, I think in my role, what is motivating is because I think about this often, through this clock and through the work we do every day, we are acting We are drawing attention to it. We are seeing increased interest, global interest among all demographics, but particularly young people. As a simple measure of this, just traffic to our website is increasing leaps and bounds among young people. So we're not in a position where we ever say we don't think people care We actually think people care quite a bit, and there's a growing attention to these issues. It's just hard to know what to do about it, and that can lead to a sense of powerlessness that I don't have because we're working on these issues every day. And what we try to do with the clock, and you can imagine we get a lot of criticism. It's a scare tactic. You're just trying to scare people. But what we see when we announce the clock each year, and increasingly now, is a sense of it stops the global news cycle. We do have a global conversation. We do get to have these podcasts. We are coming into people's homes and lives to help think about what can we do and to try to encourage the fact that just in asking your political leaders about these issues, why are you making the investments that you are? What are you doing on these issues? is important. And our leader tell us that they need to hear that to do anything. On the climate side, as daunting as these challenges are, we are seeing more action and we are seeing a greater global awareness. If we can bring that to the nuclear space, I think we'll be a lot safer. And if we can mobilize with a little bit more urgency, people should know that their voices are being heard on these particular issues. So That's what helps me sleep at night when I think of these challenges confronting us from coronavirus to nuclear risk. But my daily job allows me to feel like I have some engagement on it. And the lack thereof is what's paralyzing, I think, to so many people.
0: You could almost say that feeling the fear and having a sense of agency are quite closely connected. And that a mistake maybe people make is they think that the fear will be paralyzing It at least can be galvanising.
1: Yeah, Um, I think you said it better than I did.
0: Well, in that case, let's end there. (laughs) Great, that was perfect. Thank you.
1: Okay. Well, thank you.
0: Some regular listeners might remember that we did a guide to nuclear weapons with our dear departed colleague Aaron Rapport, when he talked about some of the things that Rachel was talking about there. We will tweet the link to that in our regular slot this week. Adam Tooze is in New York. Helen Thompson and I are going to be in Cambridge and we are going to be connecting up to talk about the impact of coronavirus on everything. Politics, oil, global supply chains, the economy, the future. I don't think you want to miss that conversation. My name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics.